Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Battier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I am here today with Dr. Ali Peoples, President and CEO of Yield 10 Bioscience. Yield 10 is an agricultural biotech company. Their focus is bioengineering of seeds to increase oil generation. They are specifically working on the camelina seed. So today we are going to learn more about Yield 10, about bioengineering, about sustainable aviation fuels and biofuels and how all of this really ties into the energy industry. So Dr. Peoples, Ollie or Oli, thank you for joining me on the show today. If you would please share with me and the audience your background, a quick introduction to Yield 10 and please correct anything I got wrong, including, including pronunciation or anything about the seed or the company, any of that? Yeah, so first of all, I, the pronunciation is Ollie. Uh, so uh, anyway, Joe, thanks for the opportunity to chat with you today. You know, Yield 10 uh, Biosciences is an agricultural biotechnology company. My background is, is, is not, not agriculture. Actually, it was um, uh, advanced uh, synthetic biology. Um, I was one of the creators of that field back at MIT, Beginning in the mid mid eighties into the early early nineties, before I started a company, uh, metabolics to focus on on bioplastics. As part of that effort, over over the over the, over the next couple of decades, we started working on an oil seed called Camelina sativa. Now most people don't know what that is, but um, if you go to the grocery store and you see soybean oil, well, soybean is an oil seed. It happens to be an oil seed which mostly is produced for its protein, but it has about nineteen percent oil in the seed. That's extracted, and so you'll see a lot of soybean oil in the grocery store. You'll also see quite a lot of canola oil. Uh, canola is also an oil seed, much more closely related to a plant like camelina, uh, and it's basically an oil seed that has about forty percent oil in the seed. So obviously, it produces a lot more oil per seed than soybean, and camelina is very similar. So, with my my background in advanced synthetic biology, you know, really what I've spent my career doing initially was really trying to optimize the productivity of, of living systems to make them more efficient. Uh, in the case of crops, that's at photosynthesis, it's at taking CO2 out of the air, and it's producing higher quantities of seed uh, and higher levels of oil in the seed as kind of key goals. And uh, we've been working in that crop now for about uh, 12 years, actually. Um, and most recently, as, as we became Yield 10 Bioscience, beginning in 20, 2017, really looking at this as a potential new crop for North America for a couple of really interesting reasons. One, it's, uh, it's very fast developing, you know, from planting to harvesting. Uh, the farmers can use their existing planting equipment 
and you could use their existing harvesting, harvesting equipment. And you can process this seed in the same types of facilities that process seeds like sunflower or safflower or canola. And so, you know, there's no real need for um, investment to create new, if you like, um, uh, capital equipment necessarily just to produce and process these things. What is needed uh, is uh, a lot of advanced technology to boost the productivity of the crop and, um, and to boost its uh, value to the grower. And so, you know, we transitioned to uh, focus really on, um, on the biofuels back in 2019. And the reason for that is, um, is suddenly there was this massive interest in basically producing alternative fuels to ethanol, uh, particularly renewable diesel fuel. And renewable diesel fuel was really driven by, by the markets in California and the low carbon fuel standards set there, which meant basically if you're a major petroleum company, it doesn't matter if you're Exxon, Chevron, Marathon, BP, Shell, whoever it is, you basically had to either buy carbon credits or alternatively, you had to blend your petroleum diesel with renewable diesel to reduce the carbon score and, and meet the standards. That set off um, a massive expansion of, I would say, refinery conversions in North America, transitioning sort of, I would say, older petroleum refineries over to renewable diesel production in the short term. Um, and I think at one point that was targeting something like an additional 6 billion gallons of uh, essentially, you know, renewable diesel type production. But similarly, that equipment is also very suited for, for another product called SAF, Sustainable Aviation Fuel, which is a topic Joe wants to discuss today. And so when you look at what's driving all of this and, and you step back and sort of look at this from 10,000 feet, um, obviously everybody's familiar with ethanol and ethanol is primarily blended with gasoline. And it's blended with gasoline, and you'll see it 10% ethanol, 15% ethanol at the pump. Um, and that's one way to reduce the carbon footprint of the, of the petroleum of that sector. However, we'll also have seen the success of Tesla. And if you were fortunate enough to buy shares in Tesla, you're probably a very happy person. I'm not one of those, and that's a shame on me. But fundamentally, what happened was... Um, when you look at electrification, now, this is primarily, I think, going to be driven by the densely populated areas, the big cities, the coasts, etc. Uh, less so in rural areas, just because of distances. Uh, but what you're going to see is, is increasing electrification. You should, in fact, see a reduction in the need for gasoline. And with that, that obviously shifts the emphasis over to these other fuels, the next generation, if you like. Um, and renewable diesel is, um, is one of the first of these. And I think that's really comes from the early work done in biodiesel. And, and what's different is the, the chemical technology used to produce renewable diesel is different from biodiesel. Um, it's a very complex process called hydro-reforming, involving the use of hydrogen. So you see a lot of interest in green hydrogen, for example, mm -hmm. also ties into this market. Uh, and what they're really doing is you just take vegetable oil, which is made up of fatty acids and glycerol, and you essentially eliminate everything in it except just by hydrogenating it. You add all hydrogen to all of the carbon atoms, and you end up with hydrocarbon, which is pretty much the same as petroleum. Hmm. And so it's a drop in, it's a drop into that sector. And what that means is you don't need alternative pipelines, alternative transportation. You can just essentially put this directly into, into the existing system, and can go into the same pumps and into the same, you know. Drugs, trucks, etc., 
Um, and you wonder, well, wait a minute, is electrification also going to take over the trucking sector? Answer, probably not. And that's because the, um, you know, the weight these trucks have to carry, which is about 38 tonnes, means that you need a tremendous amount of energy for that. And diesel fuel is a much higher uh, energy source in terms of providing the right level of capability for that. So it's unlikely that diesel fuel is going to be replaced uh, too soon, other than through renewable diesel. Now, with battery technology and what we've seen over the last 20 years, I mean, who knows, right? I mean, that's the big question. So then you ask the question, well, beyond diesel fuel, what's next? And you look at the airline industry. Yeah. Um, and you sort of say, well, do I want to get on a battery powered plane and fly to London? And the answer to me is no. I'll be long dead before then. So, <laughs> but at least be, it'll at least be through old age, not something else. And it's just basically, again, you look at the distances, you look at the energy density that has to be in the fuel. And it's difficult to see, you know, an alternative to that aviation space for quite a long time. And so you see, it's almost like there's three layers of this, generation one being ethanol and, and biodiesel, generation two now being essentially renewable diesel, and it's actually now beginning to transition to, I would say, the next big market, which is SAF, sustainable aviation fuel. And again, because renewable diesel is very much hydrocarbon, uh, you can do exactly what they do for you know, separating diesel fuel from aviation fuel, you basically fractionate it. You separate the aviation molecules from the diesel molecules, etc. So, you know, it can fit again into the same infrastructure. Uh, and obviously that's a very attractive market. And then you start to think, okay, this is sounds really very interesting. Uh, and yeah. you wonder how big could this be, right? Yeah. And how are we going to supply all of this? And so you, you see a number of technologies. I think there's quite a few activities out there that are saying, well, let's take ethanol and we'll use ethanol as a, as a, as a chemical, not as a fuel. And we'll essentially convert it through chemistry to ethylene. And then we'll make short chains of ethylene so that they look something like aviation fuel. And so there's a number of companies out there doing that. G was one, Lanzatex another. Uh, and you'll see, you'll see, you'll see that happening for sure. Because, you know, when you think about it, uh, John, you better tell me to stop if I, I'll just talk all day here. If you need to interject with a question or two, yeah, I want to go ahead. Let me jump in here, and I want to make sure we set the stage for the audience because you've laid out very well, kind of that that history of ethanol into biodiesel into into what is now seemingly getting all of the press releases and all of the news is sustainable aviation fuel and yield 10 in your own right you have had several announcements recently including talking about partnerships with the likes of Mitsubishi American Airlines and even Marathon Oil so I want to I want to understand something that I don't understand right now is where does sustainable aviation fuel fit into this timeline of of biofuels because it seems like it's only it's only recently that I've started hearing about the idea of we need to switch over airlines. I felt like before it was just something we we accepted was never going to be decarbonized and that's why when you book your airplane ticket, you're also buying trees in the Amazon. Whereas now it's like, oh, you can actually maybe fly on a hydrogen plane or 
a plane with sustainable aviation fuel. So where in the timeline does that fit in? Yeah, so I would say it's I would say it's early days. I would say what's different about renewable diesel was the incentive put in place by the low carbon fuel standards uh, in California. So the state of California essentially drove a tremendous amount of that adoption, uh, and that led, of course, to investment, uh, the construction of these refining facilities, uh, and then increased demand for feedstocks for that particular opportunity. Um, more recently, the, the, the sort of growing interest and demand for SAF, the U.S. is targeting 3 billion gallons of renewable SAF by 2030. And, and what is, five, how big of the market is that? Well, it's, it's still pretty modest, but it's still, I mean, it's, again, you've got to start somewhere, right? Yeah. And I think if you look at uh, where, they want, where they want to be in, in 2050, it's around uh, 70% of all fuel is basically SAF. I think that's the target. It's either 50 or 70%, uh, and that's around 35 billion gallons. Hmm. So here's the challenge, and this is where Yield 10 fits into all of this, because what's an ag biotech company doing in the middle of all this, right? It's a pretty fair question. Well, ultimately, uh, one of the best feedstocks for producing SAF and our, is basically um, oil, vegetable oil. And so the U.S., we have... 85 million acres of soybean production every year. Seems great. It's about 41 uh, billion bushels. It seems like a lot. Uh, and that produces about a total of about, if you would take all of that, and you would process it all to extract the oil, that would be about 6.4 billion gallons. That's, and that's and you just oil. said, so that's the whole U.S. market, 6.4 billion gallons. Be the total U.S. soybean crop converted to oil just for SAF is only 6.4 billion gallons. And you just said we need, the goal is to get up to 35 billion gallons. Yes. And keep in mind, we would all like to eat. <laughs> yeah. And then exactly what you point out there, that would be in direct competition with Food. food, food uses of, of soybean oil, for example. Yes, and similarly, canola. You know, canola is much smaller; it's just about twenty million. So, what's happened in the last few years is a tremendous growth and in interest in new oilseed crops for North America. And um, you know, I would say you, you said you know at some point somebody will fly on a on a on a plane that's powered entirely by SAF. Well, that's actually happened. There's a number of those been done as sort of, um, I guess, pilot studies is probably a good way to refer to it. Um, but there have been a lot of flights uh, done using, you know, running one engine on SAF, running the entire plane on SAF. I mean, chemically, it's the same thing, more or less. So that's all very doable. The challenge, of course, is, is, is really two things, is how much of this can you realistically produce, number one? Uh, and, well, there's probably three. Number two is at what cost? Because nobody likes to pay more for a flight. Uh, and the airlines don't like to reduce their margins. And so this is where some of the challenges come in. Uh, and this is where I think these these uh, targets are being set by the U.S. government for 3 billion gallons. The Japanese, 10% of the aviation fuel has to be staffed by 2030. Europe did something very similar. Uh, it's a smaller percentage target, but it's about the same volume. It's about half a billion gallons each for Europe and, uh, and, and basically uh, Japan. But they're also targeting getting to, you know, 50% of their aviation fuel by 2050 to be 50% or 70% south. And so there's just this tremendous market demand 
or potential market demand for new feedstock oils. Yeah, um, yeah. So I think you did a great job laying out the idea of these feedstock oils, that the advances in processing, hydro reforming, that this is this is for all intents and purposes the same as as diesel it is a a plug and play almost but we just in the us sounds like our maximum production is six billion which is about is that less than 20 percent of of half of the fuel used yeah i think yeah, you're on, you're on the right track, Joe. I think I think a couple of things. You know, obviously the first product is being the first the first uh, goal of these companies is to use all of the waste fat and oils and use tallow from obviously from meat product production to use all of that that they can get their hands on. Uh, and so that's been really the driver for the initial facilities mm. because obviously it's it, if you're reusing a waste product instead of disposing of it, that's a pretty attractive proposition. From a yeah. carbon intensity perspective, so that's really been, if you like, the first level of this. Uh, the second level of this is obviously then the use of vegetable oils, uh, and then of course the industry is looking extensively at new technologies, including this conversion of ethanol to SAF as well. Um, and then in terms of the seed industry, uh, innovators like Yield Ten are, are really focused on, you know, there's no more arable land appearing in North America. We're kind of tapped out on that. We've, you know, we've got it all under production, or under, you know, or under construction, uh, which competes. And, and it's an interesting fact that, uh, according to USDA, I think in the last twenty years, uh, twenty million acres of land was taken out of farm production. Wow. And so farmland is very finite. And so the yeah. question is, how do you increase productivity, and how do you do it in such a way that you don't um, impair food production? And yeah. so this is where oil studies like Camelina, and there, and there are others, uh, Pennycrest would be another one. We, we believe Camelina is a, a great platform for this. Uh, they can be really planted in the fall after you've harvested your corn, uh, use it as a winter cover crop, and then essentially harvest it in, in the late spring before you plant soybean. In other words, use this as a, as a way to create cover cropping that generates cash revenue for growers. And that's really the big attraction for us. Yeah. And that also, as a cover crop in the winter, then you are also limiting opportunity for soil erosion and you are keeping the 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 fertile topsoil, which is what you need to continue your other products. Which is- yeah. And I, and I think this is uh, critically important. I think cover cropping ha- should happen. It's happening anyway. Uh, growers are actually doing this, not with oil seeds currently. Um, that's still in, in the early days, but they're doing this because they know fundamentally it improves the asset value of the land. You know, you're reducing you're reducing soil erosion, you're reducing loss of the organic carbon content in the soil. That's really important for retaining moisture and just the health of the soil in general. And uh, they've been doing this anyway, and it, obviously it's a cost to them at this point in time. And so when we talk to farmers um, in particular about the potential to use this as a cover crop, which doesn't have to be then either, you know, killed or essentially plowed under before you plant the next crop, but can be harvested. Their interest is very, very high. And, uh, you know, the farming communities, they're very smart people. These are smart business people. They see these markets, they see this demand, and they're asking a question. 
how can I participate in that and, and, and how can I you know add, add value to that and so they're very excited about the prospects of these new crops um, it will take time and technology to get these crops ready to really scale to, the, to a meaningful level uh, but we started doing this you know from a quasi I would say early pilot scale commercial you know, last fall with a thousand acres planted, we did more acres of spring cabin this spring. We plan to do a larger production this fall. And uh, we're really focused now on advancing the technology. But, um, you know, the math is kind of what counts here, right? You, you mentioned the six billion gallons. So you say, well, where do we get to with um, oilseed cover crops? And yeah. how much land could be available for this once the technology is you know, matured and, and ready? And you sort of look at, Corn and soybeans in the U.S. That's uh, I think there's 90 million acre of, acres of corn. There's 85 billion okay. acres of soybean. There's 175, and you say, well, what if half of that was cover cropped? And suddenly you've got, you know, you're suddenly getting to a very interesting number of acres uh, in terms of the potential for additional cropping. Now it won't all be cover cropped, but just say half of it was. You're looking at 50 million acres of additional production. And um, with an oilseed crop um, that could be 40% oil, and uh, you know you may be looking at a, a very significant increase in availability of feedstocks for these markets, and uh, we think that's uh, a great way to go. And I would say, you know, that's not we're not the only ones. There's a lot of smart people out there, and the folks in these fuel companies doesn't matter whether you're Exxon, as I said, Chevron, Marathon, Mitsubishi, or others. They look at this space and they say, you know. Oil seed cover crops are going to be a critical piece of this going forward. Now, unlike corn and soybean and canola, these are largely undeveloped. Hmm. And so companies like Yield 10 and others, uh, Covercrest would be another one, uh, Sustainable Oils would be another one, that can really drive the innovation with these new crops. Uh, Vision Bioenergy is another uh, that can really do this um, and bring these crops really to sort of, uh, obviously, world-class standards in terms of would say their industrialization as cover crops in the shortest period of time using advanced technologies like CRISPR genome editing. You know, we see that's just a tremendous uh, opportunity for E, innovation, and B, for, uh, I would say, wealth generation. Yeah. So when we're talking about these, I just want to make sure everybody has, <clears throat> has that goalpost right now understood. Because where, I guess, when we're talking about the amount of oil produced, because you've, you're talking in acres right now, but for those acres, say the 50 million acres, how much do we think, or currently the Camelina seed, how much oil do you think it can produce from in a rough estimate of 50 yes, million acres? Today, I think, yeah, I'm going to say today is probably between 50 and 60 gallons an acre. Okay. So it's pretty, it's pretty meaningful. I think the the goal, obviously, as we bring bring the technology, you know, forward and, and, and increase its productivity, uh, and improve its uh, what's known as agronomy farming practices. Basically, you know, we'd hope to get that up to around eighty to hundred hundred gallons an acre. Wow. And at that level, you know, you're beginning to you're beginning to produce a fair amount of oil. Um, and the exciting thing about this is. Uh, just to get back to this food v fuel, if you look at the growing global population, that uh, is a concern, for sure, as it should be. And what we find is that, um, you know, one of the things that's going to be critically important going forward is to increase protein production. Yeah. And when you pr- process an oil seed like Camelina, 
just like canola, what you get is a high quality protein feed for animal production as a co-product. So this is a way through this oilseed cover cropping to increase feedstock oil availability and increase protein production for, for animal feed and for, for human consumption. And, and that's really, I think, the win-win in this, in addition to the environmental benefits of cover cropping in general. Yeah, I think that that's something that oftentimes you don't think about is the almost the, the waste product of, of what was originally considered the waste product. That being the, when you're talking about waste oils, that is, you're trying to find a way to use it. But now we are finding a way to cover things in the off season and essentially get two revenue streams from it. That's actually something that is in in some ways, and, and correct me if I'm overstepping here, but by being able to produce these crops, you are ultimately able to help help grow the food populate or the the food ecosystem yes yeah the food ecosystem the food supply for for the human population and i think that's critically important if you know if you look at the crops you know today i mean things like obviously corn wheat are really hugely important but when you look at what we really need we don't need more starch and sugar um (laughs) look at me in a little my tummy wasn't hiding here. You'd notice I'm a little returned, shall we say? So uh, obviously, um, you know, we need protein. I mean, protein's the key to this. It's uh, it's not carbohydrates, and I think uh, in oilseed crops like this, where you have high quality protein, um, similar to a bit better protein content than canola, but probably a little bit less than soybean, is a great way to sort of support and 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 make sure that we're uh, meeting the needs to to feed the feed the growing population. All right. That's exciting. I do have two, two maybe semi-off-topic questions. The first one, a little more on-topic. When you look at at where plants can grow, and and there's programs like the um, the CRP program. Of course, I'm forgetting what the acronym is. But typically, you would find farmers putting land into the CRP program if their crops aren't profitable enough or if you have land that can't produce crops and then you put it into CRP. So that's a long way of asking, can you grow camelina seeds on what is considered a, I guess, a lower quality farm field? Yeah, I mean, I I think you can. I mean, obviously the productivity is not going to be as good. But again, because it's short growing season, because it requires less, you know, fertilizer anyway, um, you know, that, that's something that I think is actually pretty attractive. And particularly um, in areas where, you know, land is viable for two reasons. One, it's the quality of the land, but it's also the availability of water. And obviously in the drier areas, and we are very active in the Pacific Northwest and that's sort of drier, drier area, just uh, this side of the Rockies. And obviously water is, is one of the things that's important. And so we find already that our camelina is uh, directly competitive in terms of accessing acres uh, because it just uses less water. Um, the short growing cycle gives the farmers advantages. Uh, and they're able to crop it and, uh, and get a crop off uh, before the high heat of summer, which is, I think, very exciting for them. Um, and I think the other thing is, is that um, in these other areas, I think uh, when you look at uh, 
you know, what can be grown there. there. There's just not too many things that are really profitable for growers, but there is an awful lot of land. And so we definitely finding that to be very attractive. Okay. And so in, in some ways, this is opening up the, the usable acres in the sense that you're, you're finding a way to make a profit from land that may have just been sitting idle. Yeah. And it's, 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 when you start to, I mean, I mean, literally I, I, as I said, I'm not, don't have an agriculture background. I fest, I fessed up to that early on. Yeah. Uh, what I'm finding just chatting with the growers is that um, the ways that this crop can help them to manage disease, to manage pests, to reduce their risk because of you know some of the shall we say weather challenges we've been facing the last few years. Uh, you know, there's just there's just a myriad of ways that they can see this really helping the rotations. Uh, and one of the things that Yield 10 decided early on is this is going to be a crop where the pr- first product is going to go into, probably go into biofuel, uh, number one. And, and the protein is going to go into animal feed. And, and pretty much all the protein meal in, in, in the world today is based on the use of uh, soybean or corn uh, and canola. And, and these meals are all basically based on GMO crops. And so early on, Yield 10 decided we have to, we have to make this a state-of-the-art crop as quickly as possible. And so one of the things we've started driving early on was really let's get weed control, allow the farmers to essentially use advanced herbicide technologies. Uh, We're advancing that very rapidly. Um, We're great success in the first two seasons of field trials, uh, progressing regulatory approval, which we expect later this year with USDA. Uh, And then we're working on the next generation of that uh, to allow growers to really seamlessly integrate this into their crop rotations. And so... Uh, yeah, the farmers are very excited about this, um, and we're delighted about that, that's for sure. Very cool. Now, the other question, more off-topic, when, as you're talking about all of this, as you're talking about low-carbon fuel standards and this being a feedstock to those, my mind jumps to carbon credits and the ability to find a way to potentially add in another revenue stream that being a way to to somehow get carbon credits or carbon offsets something in that realm i know this is not exactly in your wheelhouse but is this something that the farmers are asking about or is this something really that that marathon and mitsubishi and american airlines is is this kind of where they're going this is their end goal yeah, so, you know, they've got a number of reasons for, for obviously their interest in things like cattle. You know, one is, you know, the carbon intensity of, if we think about it for your audience, is really the carbon intensity of petroleum is about 100 units of carbon per gallon. I believe it's per gallon, but I could be wrong on that. There's so many different no. uh, units for these things. Yeah, I think soybeans around 50 and canola oil is about 50 as well. So it's about half. So that's where the savings come. There's a difference between petroleum and, and those two sources. Uh, things like waste fat and oil is down much lower in the 10 to 20 range. And I think Campbellina winter cropping, the, the goal is to drive it down to sort of the same range because, again, uh, using lower inputs, this off-season production, and then the big the big issue, of course, being the winter cover cropping where I think there's um, obviously potential for tremendous opportunity for additional carbon benefits Um but we have to prove that because the whole system works on essentially how do you monitor and, and demonstrate the accounting behind this. And now, having said that, the growers are definitely interested in this uh, whole carbon offsetting. There's no question about that. I mean, they're being um, supported by the government under the climate bill. 
the Climate Act, there was a tremendous amount of money put forward to, to begin to encourage growers to do this type of thing. And also to understand just what's happening to the carbon content of the soil. So one of the intriguing questions is, um, you know, if cover cropping with Cambolina results in additional carbon being sequestered in the soil over the over the over the over the um, what would normally be the fallow season, yeah. um, how is that going to be accounted for in these carbon equations? And how long does it have to be stored? How how much does it have to build up before you can actually? You know, we'll book a credit based on that. Um, highly likely that's going to go to the grower. It is their land after all? That seemed pretty reasonable. Uh, but what you did mention, you know, the refiners are primarily focused on the carbon score of that oil uh, as it goes into their refinery. That's something they're trying to capture, so they can actually, you know, that then take it through the through the value chain to the to the end user. And so yeah. it's it's a it's an interesting thing where the Initially, the va- there's a lot of value in the carbon score, and I think the challenge, of course, is everybody wants it. <laughs> yeah. So, so the issue is trying to figure out, you know, where do we fit in this, and how how can that shake out over time, and in a way that's you know fair, so that the industry grows and, and thrives. Uh, yeah. I think there's a lot of unknowns. Uh, we we do have a proposal pending with DOE to start really measuring this uh, with uh, with a group at the university, but um, it's still early days with respect to that. But I think generally speaking. Um, there's a tremendous interest in finding ways, I mean, pretty much any way you can reduce carbon and demonstrate that that carbon has been removed from the atmosphere is, is generally a very positive thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's very interesting to think about all of the different moving pieces, not only in in one idea of like taking a feedstock into turning it into a fuel that we can use in our vehicles, but then also how that feeds into our larger ecosystem of the food growth and of the the transportation of said fuel and how all of that plays with the climate. So like going down this this road, it it seems like there's this logical step and and we kind of see that that each of these different groups are starting to invest at very early stages, getting into the feedstock of their eventual fuels. And I could see if, if you go a few more steps, a logical progression would almost take us to say sometime in the, in the distant future, or maybe not so distant future where somebody like the oil companies or somebody like a marathon oil is now now having a low carbon feedstock group as opposed to a off or in addition to offshore exploration in that case maybe that offshore exploration is for geothermal but you could see this progression of where your energy company is now getting into the bioengineering like like investing yeah. into you and I guess I'm rambling here. No, you're not. You're actually mm-hmm. hitting the nail on the head. It's actually happening. Um, and I'm surprised, surprised, but it's happening. So, you know, there's a few examples of this um, uh, where sort of big oil has stepped in. So Exxon uh, had, had, had a partnership with a, a company called Global Clean Energy Holdings in, um, in, in Bakersfield, call it, uh, Bakersfield, California 
Well, that group, Global Clean Energy, had acquired, you know, way back in the biodiesel days, had acquired some a company called Sustainable Oils, which is a was a Campbellina seed breeding company. And and they basically had sort of that had been, you know, sat sort of dormant for a while, but then when this interest kicked off, essentially this ended up being uh, something that built up fairly quickly, and, and they were doing a big refinery conversion in Bakersfield. Uh, the timing wasn't great because right in the middle of COVID, not a good time to be building a major plant. So you know, their luck wasn't wasn't so great. But uh, anyway, uh, I think Exxon exited that that partnership. But uh, in, in the last investment they made into Global Clean Energy, I think of some type, was about 125 million. Uh, as part of that, they actually bought warrants to acquire shares in sustainable oils. Mm-hmm. Number one, then of course, um, British Petroleum formed a exclusive offtake agreement with a company called Nuseed, which is an oil seed that's um, useful as a cover crop. It's just not useful in, over the winter because it doesn't have cold tolerance. Uh, that was then followed by um, uh, a company called Covercrest, which was started by Monsanto Growth Ventures many years ago. Uh, they formed a partnership with one of the seed crushers, Bungie, and then Renewable Energy Group, which was then acquired by Chevron, made a big investment. Uh, and that resulted in Bayer, who then, who of course owns Monsanto, uh, they had the right to acquire the majority share. But that that deal was done at about two hundred million dollar valuation, and they acquired the majority share in, in Covercrest. So you're beginning to see these things happen, uh, and then Shell, uh, which obviously because it's a big European, uh, obviously has a and because of all the pressure they got on uh, on their carbon footprint, um, you know they, they had some tough times in in, in Europe. Uh, basically, again, they again formed a, a formed a new company with S and W Seeds, also focused on Camelina, to develop uh, new sources of feedstock oil for biofuels. And so, you know, what's driving all of this? So, if you think about oil companies, for the most part, oil companies really focus on the replenishable reserves, right? I mean, that's what they focus on. I've got. I've taken so much oil out of these wells. How much more is there? And how am I generating the next source of feedstock? Uh, and in this case, you know, crops are really a replenishable reserve. It's just that you can't own the asset. You can't own out of farms. That's yeah. not going to be. That's. I think there's no tolerance for that. It's not going to happen. So the best way to own that actually turns out to have the best seed genetics, hmm. because the grower is going to take the seed genetics for crop X, Y, or Z that gives them the easiest, greatest ease of use in terms of its production, but also the best returns. And so you're seeing this kind of linkage between major petroleum companies, whether it's you know, Exxon, Chevron, all of these guys, trying to link themselves all the way back into seed genetics, which, mm-hmm. you know, if you told me that five years ago, I'd have just laughed at you. So, um, but I'm seeing it, I'm seeing it, and, and I'm hearing it pretty much daily from, uh, from various discussions we have ongoing, not only with partners have been announced but uh the interest level is obviously very high yeah yeah absolutely and i think for one i think it's exciting because when you look back and and i i got to live and and see the growth kind of from the america recovery act back in 2008 2009 great recession time frame and see a lot of really cool companies stand up with really great ideas from that from that impetus to to bring us out of the the recession and a lot of them are are gone now whereas now 
and I, I think it, the writing was on the wall and the oil, the, the large incumbent energy industry could see that we're not quite going that way yet. Whereas now all of these investments are showing they're, they do see the writing on the wall. They see the horizon coming and where and when and how and why they should start diversifying. And I, I, I for one find that exciting because now I, I get this question and, and this is a common discussion of if you're graduating right now, should you go into oil and gas? And I think the, the answer I like to give is, well, don't look at it as oil and gas. If you're going with a Marathon or a Chevron or one of these companies, you're going into an energy company because they are going to find a way to, to thrive through whatever energy is. And we're always going to need more energy. So you don't need to think of it as an oil and gas company. If you're a subsurface person, you're going to find something to do in the subsurface. If you are <clears throat> bioengineering, that is another great opportunity. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, I, I mean, if you look at it, I mean, you look at the most critical things going forward. Obviously, it really comes down to you know, it turns out it's not the next iPhone. Um, you, I can't tell my kids that, but I can assure you, it really comes down to renewable energy and food yeah. and water, clean water. Yeah food and energy. The rest of it, you can figure out. Um, yeah. No, that's not sexy, but that's the reality of it. And I think in terms of energy in particular, uh, like agriculture, it's got to be a very exciting time to be involved there. Obviously, no doubt there's um, some folks internally in these oil companies that don't want to change and want to keep business as usual, but I'm not sure that's going to be sustainable for the long haul uh, from a commercial as well as from a sort of societal perspective. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Well, with that, I think now is a good time to transition into my final questions. These are the questions I ask all of my guests. That first question being, what is a favorite book of yours that you would recommend? Favorite book of mine? Oh, God, I can't remember the name of it, but it's one of the it's one. It was one about Churchill. Um, it was by uh, a British politician. It was about Churchill, uh, which I thought was absolutely terrific. I just, it was a Labour politician. I just can't remember his name. He was like a check. I think he was a chancellor of the Exchequer at one point. And so I can't remember. It's Jenkins, Roy Jenkins, Churchill. Okay. I will add that one to my list. Now, the next question, I, I switched this up since we did our pre-interview. The question is, how will we get to net zero? <laughs> Well, I think uh, a lot of hard work, a lot of compromise, a lot of recognizing that there's no on-off switch for this. This is a transition process that has to take time. It's going to take a long time to make this transition. And it's going to come from energy saving, uh, reduction in waste, as well as new sources and more sustainable sources of energy. So I think um, there's no easy answer to this. It's not as simple as a let's just stop drilling or let's just turn the gas off. That's not how this is going to work. It's not feasible. I think we all have to be realistic and recognize, recognize that we have to continue to you know, support, support the, the current uh, GDP. We have to grow it, but we have to increasingly shift this over to a more, more sustainable method. So um, yeah, it's, it's, um, there's no easy answer here. There's just a lot of hard work. Uh, and a tremendous amount of opportunity for smart, innovative people who are willing to take risk. I like it. I think that's a great answer. 
with that, there's the last question is you actually get to ask me a question. So, you know, in, in terms of, you know, where you are at and, and, and the job you've been doing for the last few years, I mean, and what are you seeing and what, what excites you the most out there about this transition? Yeah. So for, for those who don't know, I do have a day job. I've got this podcast, but then I also have a day job where I'm a subsurface geologist focused on geothermal exploration with a consulting company called Tavera. Now, I focus on geothermal. I think that what I've seen, and I'll give I'll give these two different answers. With the day job, I see, and just in general, baseload energy is something that we need, and something that we continually are are trying to find more of, and even going along those lines of finding ways to have sustainable feedstock for things like natural gas gensets and peaker plants that need to be able to turn on very quickly or that are kind of there running ready to go. So that is something that everybody's talking about is baseload. And, and really now it's, it's not as much baseload as, as large scale dispatchable and storage power, which to me is, is, even harder than baseload to really wrap your mind around and to have a, a sustainable economic project. And so that's interesting. And, and that's really, that's what everybody's talking about as well as CCS. Everybody wants to know how do we find baseload? How do we find or install storage or how do we get rid of all of our carbon? That's what people are asking about. And then from the podcast, I would say it, I think it is this weird, maybe not, weird's not the right word. It is a interesting, intricate web of, of interconnections and this, these touch points, as you pointed out, the most important parts, food, water, energy. When you talk about something like agriculture, that is the nexus of all of those. And that is what you don't see when you're sitting there in the solar field trying to focus on solar energy. People don't understand. There's, <laughs> there's a lot of other parts that go into this. It's Yeah, there's the solar supply chain, but there's also all the water to clean the solar panels. What are you taking up by putting in a solar farm, what could have gone there? How does that impact the rest of society? So there's, there's these other questions that once you zoom out and get to look at everything, the way I get to with the podcast, you start to see those connections and you start to see the ones that, that are obvious in obvious contradiction or an obvious, um, opposition. Mm-hmm. versus the ones that are are clearly synergenetic and and um, in and the ones that complement each other that would actually have a, a a magnitude improvement if they were to work together so it I think that is it's no one technology or one specific interest right now but it's the fact that, there is this collaborative effort that needs to be had that isn't 
quite fully there yet. You're starting to see people talk about it with solar and wind plus storage, but it's not just solar and wind plus storage. It should be solar, wind, storage, plus other ground uses right. where you're putting in the solar and wind. How do you fully utilize that acreage in a complete way? And then from there, how do you get that to somebody else who who needs excess power or who needs to decarbonize the next step of the supply chain? That's a long-winded answer to, I don't know if I actually said anything. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I think it's just, in many ways, reiterating what, what I said, this is very complex. Yeah. And there is no single magic bullet. There's a, a whole set of... Um, interconnected uh, technologies and, 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 and opportunities, um, some of which may or may not make sense in the long term. Uh, but until we sort all that out, we should be exploring all of them. Yep, absolutely. Well, Ollie, thank you for joining me on the show today. Before we sign off, is there anything else that you'd like to say? No, I really just appreciate the opportunity to chat with you today. Um, I love talking about this. This is fascinating, partly because it's so challenging. It's it's not easy, uh, but it's been very interesting for us to really see uh, and, and and talk to these big oil companies and to see how they how they look at things and obviously very different lens from from a yield tan. But um, uh, there's a common mission here, which is to increase the supply of vegetable oil, and we're very excited about. It. Yep. Absolutely. I think that's great. And thank you again for joining me on the show. And thank you everyone for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. If you're enjoying this show, share it with a friend and leave a review telling me what you're enjoying most and what you'd like to hear more of. If you want more news and energy related stories, we have all sorts of energy related podcasts on OGGN. You can find them by connecting with us on LinkedIn or visiting OGGN.com. If you're into stickers, we have a way to get you some from OGGN. You can go to my show notes, find the survey link, go fill that out. And once you do, we will put some stickers in the mail. Finally, if you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share, send me an email. That email address is ets at OGGN.com. If you don't use email, find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, Remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.